hear the word of God from Job 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it, and may no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year or be entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May the people who curse days curse that days. Those people that are ready to rouse Leviathan. May the morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain. Not see the first rays of dawn. Because it didn't shut the door of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why didn't I die at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? If that had happened, now I'd be lying down in peace. I'd be asleep and at rest with the kings and the rulers of the earth. They built themselves palaces that now lie in ruins. With princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Why wasn't I hidden away in the ground like a stillborn? Like an infant who never saw the light of day. There the wicked cease from turmoil. And there the weary, they're at rest. Captives also, they enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the great are there. Slaves, they're freed from their masters. Why is light given to those people who are in misery? And life given to the bitter soul? To those who long for death, but it doesn't come. They search for it more than for hidden treasure. Filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I fear, it's come upon me. The thing that I dreaded, it's happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. This is the word of the Lord. So excited to preach on this topic and on this text. Before I do so, I want to just share a little bit, do another plug really quickly for Safe Families volunteering. I know this past year of COVID has made it really easy and tempting and comfortable to stay at home and kind of sink into your own life and your own self and to your own family. 
But can I tell you something, my people, even though it feels comfortable, even it feels like that's what you want to do, we are made as people to live in community and we are made as people to serve. Because let me tell you, you are most fulfilled when you do the will of God and you walk in the purposes that he's called you to. So please, people, give, sacrifice your time, be a part of this team with safe families. Another plug I really want to point out there, throughout there, is faith and finances. It's a team that's coming together and wants to help people with finances, help people specifically who are struggling, who, who um, have a hard time managing their finances, who are really having a difficult time. I want you to be a part of that team. If, if you're here and you want to receive the benefit and help from that training, please contact the office. But if you're also here and you want to volunteer and be a part of that team, it's an incredible way to serve. And that's something that people, like people in churches and people in life in the Western individual world, we don't want to talk about finances or politics or religion. But that's a huge part of our life. And we need to learn how to do it well for the glory of God. So guys, I encourage you guys to, to get plugged in to serve. Last thing, if you're here today and you're struggling, and you're struggling finances, you're struggling emotionally, you're struggling spiritually, whatever way, you don't have to struggle alone. Can I just say that again? You don't have to struggle alone. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be scared. Struggle together. Let me tell you, when I share my burdens, this thing that felt heavy on my shoulders becomes lighter because people are bearing it with me. And if you're struggling financially, it's okay. We as a church, let me tell you this, as a church, you, these people are so loving, they love you so much that we pledge and give 20% of the budget automatically off the top straight to missions and supporting people. But on top of that, they've raised more funds in this church to help people who are struggling, not to give it begrudgingly, but to give it joyfully because we want to share your burdens with you. So don't be ashamed. No shame. Come and connect with us. Share what's going on so we can serve and love you together. Does that make sense? Quick little plugs, little caveat before we get started. I just want to share that before I get into this really exciting text. <laughs> Church family, I hope you're doing well today. We're starting a brand new series that we'll be in for about seven weeks. That series is on the wisdom literature that we haven't covered before, namely Job, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. We've covered Psalms and Proverbs in the past, kind of did a separate section on them, although they're so long that we could probably do a million sections on them, but we decided to go with these other three books of the wisdom literature. Those five books make up the wisdom literature in the Bible. And the wisdom literature is meant to teach people how we are to live in this world. The book of Psalms is, is like the prayer and worship book for the people of God while they await the coming Messiah. It shows us the walk in life of a righteous person, John Calvin called it the anatomy of the human soul. The book of Psalms is a beautiful collection of writings that explore the depth of the soul and its relationship with God. Now, I want to get into the rest of these books really quick. I'll give you an overview. And I got most of these overviews from the Bible Project. So if you ever watch, has anybody ever seen the Bible Project videos? They're excellent. Watch them. The book of Proverbs were given access to a perspective similar to that of a brilliant teacher offering her insights on a wide range of subjects from relationships to wealth to spirituality. Proverbs shows us that there is an aspect of God, his wisdom, that can guide us through our life. And the beautiful thing about Proverbs, it basically kind of shows us a simple formula that basically works like this. If you make good decisions, if you seek wisdom, typically good things are going to happen. Right? That's the book of Proverbs. 
But then right after the book of Proverbs, there's the book of Ecclesiastes that says, yeah, everything that happened in Proverbs, uh, let me, I'll take that back. In Ecclesiastes, there's three kind of different, relatively disturbing themes are explored, all of which attempt to show that this life, at least as we know it, may be meaningless. First, the march of time. Time progresses forward, eventually we're all forgotten. Second, that we're all gonna die. No matter what we do, no matter how great we are, we die. And finally, that life has a random nature. Sometimes misfortune strikes good and wise people. Sometimes fools are rewarded. But however, all of these dark themes are meant to portray a a much brighter message that one day God will bring forth his justice and reign. Then we have the Song of Solomon, which is, well, have you guys ever read the Song of Solomon? Anybody honestly has ever read the Song of Solomon? Some interesting quotes in that one. Brevard Child states about the Song of Solomon in his intro to the Old, Old Testament. He says, Israel's sages sought to understand th- through reflection the nature of the world and human experience in relation to the Creator. The song is wisdom's reflection on the joyful and mysterious nature of love between man and woman within marriage. It's a unique book in the Bible that offers a unique gift. It's a playful and beautiful exploration of the most powerful and potent of human experiences, love and passion. This book of Israelite love poetry lets us peer back into Eden. And in this way, the poem both affirms human love, but also it shows how it is itself only a pointer to something more grand and more beautiful. Guys, I want you to know this is cool about Song of Solomon. The book never mentions God's love, but all all of it links back to the Garden of Eden and makes this point by itself. It asks the question, who is the author of life and human experience? And who, therefore, is the author of this powerful experience called love? is none other than the author and creator of all reality who has given humans a great gift and responsibility in our bodies, minds, and hearts when it comes to love. Now, you'll learn a lot more about this because I'm going to give this awesome book to preach on by Danny. So that's going to happen during the sabbatical because I didn't want to touch this one. So Danny's got that great, beautiful gift. And he can talk about goblets and um, navels and all that beautiful romantic stuff. I get to preach on Job. Job, and throughout the book of Job, we see Job and his friends wrestling with the question of why a God who is wise and just lets horrible things happen to an innocent man. It's a question that God himself answers, though not in the way that Job was expecting or we would be expecting. Instead, God takes Job on this virtual tour of the universe, giving a look at the complexity of the world God is in control of. And doing this, God is showing the Job that his suffering is just one part of an infinitely large cosmic scheme that God is controlling. You know, even though God's answer was, was more than satisfactory, and even though Job was humbled by God still chose to restore all of, uh, God still chose to restore all of Job's blessings to him. So our problems are still important to God that we should still trust him to look over us. So this is a quick overview of the wisdom books. And the reason I share all of this is that all these books work together and are meant to be read together and understood in light of each other. Don't miss that. You don't want Ecclesiastes to exist by itself, because after you're done reading it, you'll just be depressed. And you don't want Song of Solomon to exist by itself, because all you're going to look for is romantic relationships after that. They fit together to convey a deeper and more meaningful message. It shows us what life really is and how to live in this world. It shows us that, yes, typically if you make wise decisions, it will work out well for you. But then Ecclesiastes says, but not all the time. And it also shows you that, yes, good things happen to bad and good people, that even good people will suffer. Because that's our reality, isn't it? It also shows you that the human condition, the human experience, is that we will feel 
unbelievable heights of joy, but we can also feel such low of lows. And it's all okay. So today starts a quick three-part series into the book of Job. So let's dive into it. The book of Job is a unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. The story is set in a very obscure land that is far away from Israel called Uz. Uz? Uz? Sounds like Oz, you know? I don't know if if the Wizard of Oz creator was like, ooh, that's a name, I should borrow that. I always wondered that, by the way. I don't know, that's just me. If anybody ever thought about that. But the main character, Job, is not even an Israelite. And the author, who's anonymous, doesn't set the story to any kind of historical setting in the, story, in the biblical narrative. He doesn't say, this is after Moses. This is pre-David. He doesn't set the story anywhere. It all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather focus simply on the story of Job and the questions raised by his suffering. And it has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative in prose, prologue, then an epilogue in prose. But the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry. It represents conversations between Job and his four dialogue partners, his friends, and God. And these these conversations are concluded by these poetic speeches that God gives Job. And it all works together to convey this message. So let's set the stage. Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens. So God is there with his angelic crew, his sons of God, and they're all they're kind of reporting to duty. He's, he's gathered around, he's got his crew with him. And God points out this guy. He's like, Job's here. And God's like, man, that Job, he's a pretty righteous dude. This is how God speaks, by the way, in case you were wondering. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches him. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan or the Satan. And who is he? Who is a Satan or Satan? I, I'm going to use both because Satan's kind of how we pronounce it, but it's actually more pronounced the Satan. Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed or the adversary. So it's a title. So if you're the Satan, then you're the adversary. You're the one who's opposing. You know, my sister calls me the devil of Catan when we play Settlers of Catan together. So I would be her adversary. I'm the Satan of Catan. Love that title. So out of this whole crew, there's this one person, the adversary, the opposer, who's questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually, Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God was to take away all the good things that he gave to Job, then he'd probably see that Job isn't really that faithful. Maybe he's just obeying to get what he wants. Maybe he just obeys because then God will reward him. So God agrees to this experiment. And allows the opposer, the aggressor, the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everything. And I mean everything. It's devastating. It's extreme. He loses all his material wealth. He loses all his material goods. He loses his savings, his pension, his retirement plan. He loses his job. He loses his goods. He loses his furniture. He loses his his collection of cards. Whatever it may be, it's all taken away. He loses then his children, his sons and his daughters. He then gets covered with painful sores all over his body. I remember in the midst of all of this, God said himself that he didn't deserve it. And the remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then chapter three, the one that was just read to us, we found out how he's really feeling inside. 
He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. And this morning, I want us to focus on this cry, this lament from Job found in chapter 3. And then the next two weeks, we'll, we'll look at the friend's arguments and the prose and the poetry and God's argument back to Job. But today, I just want us to sit with Job for a bit in the suffering. I mean, can you imagine his suffering? The depths of it. The extre- how extreme it was. And maybe you don't have to today. Maybe you don't need to imagine because you've suffered, maybe in some way similar, but you've suffered like him. And today I want us to sit in and contemplate suffering and lament. I once had a senior pastor who I worked for and with, whom I was very close to, and he shared with me about his suffering. He lost his first son to a tragic accident when his son was a teenager. And this was years later, and I, I went into his office. I was working on something for the church, and I walked into his office because kind of what I did. We had his office door open. I just barged in. And I'm like, hey, this is going on to church. And I saw that he could tell that his eyes were red and he's been crying. So I asked him, hey, what's, what's, what's going on? Why, why, why are you crying? And he looked up, up at me, and he just said, I miss my son. Years after he passed away, but he looked up at me and said, I just miss my son. And so we just sat there and we just wept together. And he just shared with me how hard it was. What do you say to such loss? What can you say? What could I say? What could anyone say? Buck up, little camper. Cheer up. You can't say that. All you can do is weep and lament together and grieve And this is what Job is doing here in chapter 3. It's not a statement of depression. It's utter lamentation. It's a cry of anguish from the heart. It's a personal song of lament. It's an animal squealing in pain, saying, my heart hurts. Maybe that's you today. I want you to know that it's okay to cry out like that when your heart hurts. Why does Job respond the way he does? Why the change from chapters 1 and 2 to chapter 3 to this heart-wrenching lament? We know that he's lost his possessions. We know he's heard the, heard, he lost his children already. We know that his health is gone and his wife was harsh. Who wouldn't scream with pain? But Job's initial response was extraordinary towards all that happened. He said, naked I come into the world and naked I'm going to leave it. The God I know gave me everything and this is the same God that's taken them away. May his great name be praised. Shall we accept good from God? Of course. Shall we not also accept trouble from God? So Job affirms his trust in God, even in the midst of all these terrible things that have happened to him. Yet now in chapter 3, we meet a more complex situation. Here's a dark chapter of intense lamentation. Why? What triggered this after chapters 1 and 2? One possible reason is maybe the words of his wife got to him. She literally said at the end of chapter 2, it says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Which is pretty harsh. His wife, his best friend, his companion for 30 years, mother of his 10 children, could she be right? I mean, he did have an illness. Maybe it seemed fatal. It just on to death. There seemed no hope for him. He was a dying man. Maybe he's thinking, maybe I should just curse God and get it all over with. But he doesn't curse God. He curses the day of his birth. Because he had begun a life in which a man was given everything only to have it all snatched away. Or maybe it was because 
seven days, it says, of absolute silence. And at the chapter seven, his friends show up, and his friends show up, and his friends are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, which I just love biblical names, by the way. Like, I just want to like, name everything biblical names, if I had my way. My son's name is Josiah, and I love it, but I wanted his name to be Melchizedek, but it's still biblical names. But I just felt like Melchizedek was so much, like, I would love to name my son Eliphaz. Wouldn't that be cool to be like, hey, Eliphaz? I'm just saying, random note. And they show up, and at the end of chapter two, you would think they'd be coming with words like, like me, like stuttering and muttering. I'm like, I'm so sorry. What can I do? What can I do? I'm so sorry. What can I do? But they didn't say a word. They didn't w- w- say anything. They, they sat in complete silence for seven days. Why? What in the world? Doesn't make any sense. It's awake. They were treating him as if he had died. You don't speak to a corpse, there's no point. These three men are carrying out all the rituals of a Middle Eastern funeral. They've torn their clothes, they picked up ashes, they scattered them over their heads. They had seven days of mourning. And we found Joseph in, the, in other parts of the Bible mourning for his father Jacob for seven days. And when the people of Jabesh Gilead discovered that their former deliverer, King Saul, had been killed in battle, they mourned for seven days. So it was, it was these friends, the men of Job, his buddies, they came, and Job is witnessing his own funeral service. They mourned for seven days. He's being crushed like a, a, an animal on the side of the road, and his friends are treating him like a corpse. He felt like he had nothing more. He felt like he should just die. And so what does Job say? The most obvious literary feature of the book of Job from this point onwards is everything from chapter 3 on is poetry until the very end. It can be easily spotted in all the modern translations of the Bible. Um, it's kind of harder sometimes for us if we have these kind of double columns in the Bible. It doesn't feel as much like poetry because when we think of poetry, we think it needs to rhyme, right? But this is actually beautiful poetry, this language of imagery and the way it sounded and the rhythms in the original Hebrew was poetry. And the significance of poetry is that there's a deliberate choice of words and phrases constructed in a certain way to give vividness and um, make it more memorable to what is being said. It's an effective literary device and form which God uses to reveal his divine and eternal issues. And the first form of poetry, the first thing Job says is that Job is to curse the day of his birth. And that's a day usually characterized by wonderful joy. That occasion, a shout goes out from the house saying, it's a boy, it's a girl. But now for Job, he contemplates his own day of birth as a trigger for a lifelong sequence of events whose end is ultimately disaster and unimaginable grief. His words are hyperbole, it's poetry, it's poetic hyperbole of lamentation. It flows from the frustration that Job is feeling. He doesn't believe that anything could be done about the day of his birth, but he's saying, for what has happened to me, it might as well have been that I've been cursed on that day. That even today, in all my sufferings, because I've been cursed since the day I was born. See, when you're in the midst of such depression and such darkness, you don't even realize that all the good that you had leading up to that point, you see it as cursed because it didn't prepare you for how bad it is now. And it skews the way you look at what happened in your life. And secondly, Job wished that he'd been a stillborn child, it says in verses 11 through 19. The pain that he's going through is so intense that he wished, wouldn't wish it on his enemy. He just wished that rather that he, he was never born. And you see in this lamentation, he expresses all his inner anguish. In the last verses, I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, but only turmoil. I would guess that this phrase has been such a comfort 
to so many Christians passing through suffering and depression who felt exactly like what, what Job has felt like but never or was too afraid to say it. To find that these words, holy and inspired words of the Bible, actually has a passage in the Bible that talks about true darkness, true depression, true downness, and knowing that it's holy and inspired, and knowing that this is a righteous man who says it, may bring comfort to those who feel these exact same words sometimes. Spiritual turmoil, distress is not a mark that we're not Christians. Many strong Christians have seen themselves in Job's lament. Job was inspired to express his anguish so comprehensively that God's afflicted people might know that other Christians have passed through such situations and feelings before. Do you understand this? What I'm saying is that, guys, the the depth of his expression should comfort those who have felt the same way. That you're not alone, and it doesn't mean you're not righteous before God. Some of God's people may sometimes fear that their sins or the depth of what they're going through has gone beyond what God is able to reach. But let me tell you, there are untold millions singing before the throne of God who have gone through the very same fears, tribulations, and darkness that you have gone through and that Job has gone through. I love this holy boldness of Job. He lays it all out before God, all his grief, his anguish, his hurt, his frustration, his fear, where he's at, all of it. And God isn't afraid of it. God isn't shying away from it. God doesn't look on Job in disgust. And may this chapter show you that God wants to hear your cries of lament. If anguish is your state, then he wants you to let it out and he wants you to express it. People, can I tell you something? Can we be honest with you? What I hate about the Christian church nowadays is that we show up and we put on our Sunday best and we ask you, hey, how's it going? Oh, everything's great, brother. I just sound like Randy Moshman Savage. I don't know why. <laughs> but that's what we do, right? We put on this face and we put on this act that you and your wife could have just been fighting. Your kids might have just driven you insane. You might be struggling. You might be depressed. Your bank account might be a negative. You're struggling in all many ways. But as soon as you get to church, you're like, oh, everything's great, man. God's good. Can I tell you that it's okay when it's not? And can I tell you that the church needs to be the place where we can come to and say, can I just be honest with you? Do you really want to know? Do you really want to know how everything's going? I'm struggling. And it's dark. And honestly, I don't know if there's a light. I don't see the light. Can you help me find it? Can I tell you something? That that's what community living is. This other stuff, it's fake living. It's not real. It's not life together. But we're called a living community. And community and true human experience. That's why I love the Bible. The Bible isn't full of, hey, everything is awesome all the time and just go about your day. The Bible is full of stuff like this too. It's full like Psalm 88. A lament that just cries out, God, will you do something? Because sometimes that's where we're at. That's reality. That's the human experience. I want you to note something that God never tells Job why this is happening to him. Right? I mean, you kind of would expect him eventually, like, Job, it's okay, buddy. This is happening not because you're bad, not because you messed up, but I just want to use you to shape thousands and millions and hundreds of millions of people, billions of people. It's going to be for my glory. And he might, he might be like, oh, okay, God. But God never tells him. And let me ask this honest question to you. Do you think finding God's will for everything that happens in your life is a biblical idea? Here's what I mean by that. I feel like so many Christians rely on 
hunches and gut feelings to say, this must be the will of God. Right? In specific instances. There's an overall will of God that we know is his glory and advancement of his kingdom, right? But I'll talk about little things and little decisions. They're like, this must be the will. This must be the will. They rely on these gut feelings and hunches. The thinking goes like this. God has a plan, and therefore I should figure out what that plan is for every moment. But that's not really truly logical. It's a conclusion that they cannot follow logical premises. Simply because God has a plan does not mean that he necessarily has any intention of sharing that plan with you. The message of Job is in part that Lord, in his sovereignty, may allow terrible things to happen, and you may never know why. You may never know why. A general may have a plan in place that the private might not know anything about. The coach may have an idea that the left tackle doesn't get to know the idea of why he's doing that, what he's doing. And the events of the first two chapters were never disclosed to Job. But we do know these things. But that we know that such times of trouble do happen and do happen to Christians. This lamentation isn't unique in the Bible. There's a pattern of very mature believers who loved God and served devotedly going through similar experiences. Guys, consider the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached year after year in the face of great hostility and unbelief of the people. And there was an occasion when men beat him savagely, put him in jail. And this is what brokenhearted Jeremiah said. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, a child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing at the morning, a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave. Her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow, to end my days in shame? Jeremiah 20, 14 through 18. It's very similar language, isn't it? This is the same Jeremiah who also said, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You guys know the very the verse you memorize to make yourself feel better? You know that one? Now, there's nothing wrong with memorizing a verse. I'm not saying that to say you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying a little bit out of context, but that's okay. Same Jeremiah who wrote that verse is saying here, why was I born? Yeah, the same thing in Psalm 88. Psalm of Lamentations, many consider the saddest psalm. Or you can think of Jesus himself. When he comes to Mary and Martha's home, he knows that he will soon raise Lazarus from the dead. He has his plan. He knows what he's doing. But when he arrives and Martha takes him to the graveside, Jesus weeps with him there. He doesn't show up and say, no worries, folks. It's going to be all good. Stop your crying. I'm here. There's not yelling at Mary and Martha. Why are you crying, Mary? Don't cry, Martha. I'm here. No, there was a time where Jesus just stood by the, the grave and he just wept. He wept. A time of lament that even Jesus went through. Even though he knew the plan, he still went with lamentation. So the time of lament shouldn't surprise us, but the other truth is still real, that we still know that God is sovereign. We see this in, this in the strange interaction with the adversary. The, the adversaries needed permission to enact all that he did. What that means is, yes, Satan is real, but others, others have stated that he's on a leash. Evil as Satan is, he can do nothing but be God's unwitting instrument to bring glory to God through the obedience of Job. That's what happens is that God gets the glory. Not in a, in a weird, sick way because somebody is tortured, but, but in the way that Job can still say, God is better than anything in this world, and he deserves all of our trust, even when I suffer and struggle, he chose to worship. 
God never judges Job for his questions. Nor does he judge him for this extraordinary lament for cursing the day of his birth, for longing that he might have died, to literally make the statement that it might have been better that I was dead. He spoke these things publicly before his friends and before God. He told God that's how he felt, and God accepted his self-diagnosis and tolerated his condition. Guys, my people hear this. God didn't rebuke Job for his cries and lament. This needs to be a part of our true experience in church. We need to be able to be real, to experience the depth and thought and emotions and express them. God isn't scared of it. And it isn't healthy to bottle it all up. I want you to express and lament. Cry out to God in your pain and your hurt. Share your brokenness with your brothers and sisters. Can I tell you what Job did was healing for him. Even though the, the, the friends came out with the worst advice ever. Can I tell you this right now? I'm just going to throw, throw this out there. Sometimes you're going to come to the church with all your hurt and they're going to say stupid things to you. Go ahead. I want to go ahead and apologize for them right away. It might even be me. I might say, I say stupid things often. What I mean by that is you might come and you're hurting and I might say stupid things. I hope I don't. I pray that I don't. I hope the church doesn't either. But we're all imperfect people and sometimes we don't know how to heal and how to help. But can I tell you anything? Still take the risk. I love this. Job was bold and he shared his heart and his three friends said the worst answers possible. We'll dive more into that next week. But his, his three friends were like, what'd you do wrong, Job? You had to have done something wrong, right? How would you like that if you came up and you were suffering, you were broken, and your friend's like, well, what did you do wrong? It's not the worst answer ever, right? But he still shared. Can I tell you right now, my people, I'm not promising you that if you share in this church that you'll hear the best answers, that we're the best counselors, the best trained people, we'll give you the best answers ever. I'm not saying that. But I'm still saying you should still share. Because by the grace of God, I pray that we can carry your burdens together. And I can promise you this, that we'll try, that I'll try, and that people in this church will try, walking by the power of the Spirit to comfort you and to share your burdens with you. So please share. One of the most powerful things that happened to me recently was after shootings in Atlanta, um, after just a lot of experiences and kind of processing trauma and racial trauma for me is we had a time of prayer as a church. And we had about, I don't know, 40 people gathered together on Zoom, which is not the most personal, intimate way to gather anyway, but we still did it. And we gathered together 40 people on Zoom and we were praying together. And for some strange reason, I had no intention in my heart to to cry. Um, I don't think most of the people, the most common thing I heard somebody say is most of the, 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 the Asian brothers and sisters who got up there on Zoom was like, I don't know why I'm crying right now, but here's what's going on in my heart. I felt a lessening of my burden. Not a complete taking away, not, not a, ooh, I feel awesome now, but just knowing that my family cares and is praying with me. And they might not get it all the time. That's okay. They care enough to listen and ask. My people, my people, we need to lament, be comfortable grieving and lamenting together. Psalm 42 says, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. The psalmist is expressing that his soul is down and disturbed, but choosing to put their hope in God. 
in your hurt and in your grief, in your lament and in your struggle, where will you choose to put your hope? A same old pastor that I was close to, who I mentioned earlier, would always say this. There is no hurt and pain like losing your child. There is no hope and joy like knowing you'll see them again. He chose to put his hope in a God that resurrects the dead. My people, where's your hope today? And if you're struggling in that dark place, please reach out to us. Not because we're going to fix you or save you. Not because we have power to do so. But we will hopefully point you to the God who resurrects the dead. Who knows you. Who loves you. And who has called you to purpose. So may we weep together. May we mourn together. May we hurt together. When we look after this example in Job and say there are times to be broken and lament. But may we also hope together, celebrate together, joy together, and love together. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we, we thank you that you are, you are good and we choose to trust in that. That you are loving and we choose to believe that. And that you are all powerful and we choose to rest in that. God, in the midst of whatever circumstances that are before us, in the midst of pain and suffering, God, we choose to believe that you are good and you are making all things new. So for those who are brokenhearted, for those who are downtrodden, for those who are broken right now, God, may you encourage them, may you stir in them an ability and a desire to lament together as a church body, to seek comfort in each other as we ultimately seek comfort in you. And God, for those of us who are in this body, who are in different seasons, God, may we continue to love each other well as we continue to choose to trust in you. God, will you move in our midst so that we become truly a community that knows how to celebrate and lament together and we hold those in tension. God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.